The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast, as Walker says, strangely enough, about board games. I am the prophet of rage, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is the hype machine, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Yeah, boy! Walker coined those terms many months ago, and I think it bears repeating. Uh, They're even on our business cards, if you've had the pleasure of seeing them. And it is appropriate because uh, this week's topic, which we'll talk about later, is indeed about hype. Walker's been wanting to talk about hype for a while. He's been suggesting it with a regularity that implies a certain degree of automation, um, an almost machine-like quality, if you will. Hence my reference to his uh, self-given nickname. So we're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game this week is going to be Cerebria, the Inside World. And as previously mentioned, we are going to be talking about hype. Specifically, we're going to be talking about... Well, I'm going to be talking about how I get hyped. I'm going to be talking about... I'm going to be questioning Walker about how he gets hyped. We're going to be talking about the cycles of hype in the hobby and what we think the consequences those are for both us as consumers and for the market more generally. But before we do any of that, before we would even consider doing any of those things... Let us not forget the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus. And by popular demand, we will be adding a little bit more texture to that. Our Aurus, last year we reviewed... Can it be a furry texture? Because, you know, then, you know, I can get some sleep. This walker is velvet, not velveteen. A gentleman knows the difference. That's so, so true. So our velvety Aurus this week is 51st State Master Set, which we reviewed last year. So, Walker, do you still play 51st State Master Set? I do. And they're still picking up expansions. I finally got the BGG expansion, which added two more races or two more factions, however you want to put it, and some extra cards. And Portal is still supporting it, right? They're putting out yet uh, the second expansion, I guess you could say. Yeah, second expansion. So that's great. Well, that being said, Portal has a good track record of supporting all their products, be they good or cough, alien artifacts. And so, yeah, Fits for State is a fantastic game of... Uh, 
tableau building. It's much, very much like Imperial Settlers, where you have two sides and three different levels, and you're destroying other people's buildings and trying to get yours out and trying to create some sort of engine with the resources you're getting. And I think they do a fantastic job all in one package with fantastic wooden components and a game that flows really well with artwork and a theme that all works and is very interesting to play. I really agree. I think it's good, not great, but I still enjoy playing it, especially because over the past year or two, there's been endless tableau builders in the Euro space. It's, it's become sort of a default cousin to, you know, it used to be auctions. We don't really do auction games much anymore, but it's worker placement, it's tableau building, that's all the rage. And I really do think the 51st State Master Set is an accessible, engaging, attractive way to do tableau building that doesn't drag on for too long. We're talking about a relatively brisk moving game. It's got a touch more player interaction than a lot of others, those other games. And it's definitely less about upkeep and tedious transferring one kind of resource to another. You know, in order to get your engine building, you really need breadth rather than depth. And I mean that actually as a compliment. It, you don't turn A into B into C into D into points. You do, however, have these little widgets that turn things into points, but you can't rely on an individual widget. You need several to, to really round out your engine. And that's what I, what I think I like. So I really do think it's held up well. The only fa- In point of fact, the only way in which my opinion has changed about it is I initially felt that the different decks didn't add enough variety. And I'd like to say that I was wrong about that, especially with with respect to the boxed expansions, I really do think that they're they they add a different texture to the game in a more uh, more substantial way than I initially thought, and so I'm very much looking forward to the future expansion that you talked about. Yeah, I really think they break up that thing that I was in problem with, like oh, I drew this card that's going to win me the game because you just say okay, well now you don't have that card anymore because I blew it up through this mechanic that everyone can use. So it's not as though it's like a take that or you know ganging up on somebody. It's just a, a common mechanic that if someone gets a card that's way too powerful that you can easily just you know deprive them of that very quickly. And given that every card can only be utilized once around, I really don't think that's a huge problem in terms of unbalancing the game. That's not to say that all the cards feel samey, and it's not to say that I've never had any balance concerns with any of the cards, but you're right. Insofar as there might be some sort of meta that might break the game, well, whether it's groupthink or a legitimate concern, in either case, you just go and burn it down and problem solved. And I really do think that, especially in terms of the way the market has gone, it's very, very well situated. Look, we, we, we disagree about terraforming Mars. A lot of our audience disagrees uh, about terraforming Mars. And by a lot of our audience disagrees, I mean a lot of them think that I'm stupid, which is fine. In terms of, you know, a, a more accessible, shorter tableau builder, I really think you could do a lot worse than 51st State Master Set. So that's that's our Aurus. That's where we touched in last last year. So let's move on to uh, newer and better stuff because it was published a couple of years ago, so we don't ever want to think about it ever again. Uh, so what did you play last week, Walker? We, let's start off with Kingdom Death Monster. We finally, you know, bit the bullet after the great move disaster of, of 2017. By we, he means me. Well, we all helped move. It was all. Oh, that, no, that is true. You did, you did help me move, but so what I happened? was the one. I was the one who was putting the brakes on these campaign games. True, it was my fault. So, well, not it's not your fault that the, that it got messed up. It's, it, it is a daunting task. What had happened is that somehow the box got upended, and if you know in these giant campaigns, there are thousands of cards, and it all got mixed together. So we somehow had to you know sift through this and find out which cards we had, and finally get back into it. We only got one mission done, but that being said, that was like reintroducing ourselves to the whole system and what we used to have and double-checking, you know, and getting restarted, and it was just as great as I remembered it. Uh, As you say, it it was a daunting task, and I was a little bit daunted. I was a touch intimidated, and part of me, the thing that I remembered from the review was just how, you know, kind of mechanically dumb it is in a number of ways. 
But what I what I completely forgotten, at least experientially, what I'd failed to internalize was just the amount of story and narrative and texture that even a single session has. We were pouring through these survivor sheets and we were remembering all these things that happened to these poor, unfortunate souls. It's like, oh, that's the person who fell in love with a stone and now carries it around with them wherever they go. Oh, this is the person who was uh, who is so riddled with mental illnesses that they refuse to leave the settlement, even though they were a complete badass killer when they were still willing to go out. And just all these little details. Now, a lot of the details we couldn't remember because there's so much in any given campaign of Kingdom Death Monster. These keywords that might have made sense to us at some point, and now we don't remember where they come from because sometimes it comes from a deck of cards. Sometimes it comes from an adventure book. Sometimes it comes from a scenario-specific thing. Sometimes it comes from a monster AI card that has permanent effects. Or some event. Yep, that's what I was saying, too. This is just the kind of busy paperwork that makes the whole game. The actual fighting the monster, like you said, seems very mechanical and, you know, not, you know, obvious or anything, but it's, it's a very small part of the game. It's like the payoff for setting everything up correctly. You go through the motions and and either you've, you know, sent guys to the slaughter because you know you had no chance or it's like time to, you know, harvest the organs and increase your gear and then get into the really grit of the story because your guys are going to die. But they just don't, you know, turn the page and say, uh-oh, they're dead. They're like, there's, you know, they saw a giant whale, you know, sailing through the sky and it made their mind melt and and their spirit got sucked out of their and it's and then you know everyone saw this happen and they got inspired and they get a bonus but this poor other guy is so mentally challenged now that he just you know refuses to leave the village and this is this is just one of hundreds of death scenarios that you can come by and they're all very interesting they all sort of make sense and they all have a bad and or good thing that will that will you know that will make you feel feel fulfilled in this campaign that you're doing Overall, I think it's a fantastic system. Yeah, I'd forgotten the experience of playing it. I remembered that it was an experience game, but I'd forgotten what the experience was like. I'm glad we went back to it. I'm glad the campaign's picked up again. It is not something that I want to play all the time. It's very much the sort of weekly event type game uh, that I wouldn't want to... You know, I'm I'm generally up for games seven days a week, but I don't think I'd be up for Kingdom Death Monster seven days a week. But I'm very glad we went back to it and we'll probably be coming back to it in the near future. And I feel the same way about going back to Gloomhaven, which we haven't picked up in a while, but we talked about that in the context of a review not too long ago. So that was Kingdom Death Monster. We also got to pull out a game called Reichelt. This is one of the newer releases by Uwe Rosenberg. We talk about Uwe Rosenberg all the time. He's mostly known for his worker placement games now, although I'll be talking about an uh, an older Uwe Rosenberg game in just a few moments. And Reichelt is very much of his recent design work in that Uwe Rosenberg seems to want to put out a big box game, and then he iterates on it several times. And sometimes those iterative versions are just pared-down versions. So, for example, he releases... Feast for Odin. Thank you. I had a momentary blank there. He releases Feast for Odin, and then he has a bunch of other games that have the sort of tiling element of Feast for Odin, but not all the other elements. And it's strange, therefore, that in in 2018, he releases Reichelt, which is basically a tiny fraction of Agricola blown up into a full game. In Agricola, you can... One of the many, many things you can do in Agricola is make some fields, plant some stuff, harvest some stuff from those fields that you planted. And that's the entirety of Reichelt. You get greenhouses... You get veggies, you put the veggies in the greenhouses, and then you harvest the veggies, and then you pay veggies to get points, effectively. It's not really points, it's you you advance up a track. And I found Raycolt very unengaging. It did not grab me, it didn't hold my interest, and 
for what it's worth, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of Agricola. It makes me want to play Agricola again for the first time in a while, which is uh, which I'll probably enjoy thoroughly. The other strange thing about Reichold, and normally this is not something that bothers me, but it was so pronounced, was the graphic design of the game was baffling to me. You want to elaborate on that, Walker? I, I, I think you don't. I, I could elaborate from. if I could actually see what you're talking about. The, the, <laughs> the print was so small that we couldn't even read it. It was ridiculous. Not even just on the board itself, which had tons of wasted space that they could have made this font bigger. But even on the cards that that just didn't have much on them that they could have made way bigger so you could actually read what was going on. And it wasn't just you or I. It was all four people at the table had to get up and 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 lean right over the table to, to read these spaces, of which there are quite a few in a four-player game. And unlike A Feast for Odin, where all the spaces are arranged in a reasonably sensible way, all the like spaces are clumped together, in Reichholt, all the planting actions are just spread out all over the board. And so if you desperately want to plant something because you need to plant something because that's roughly one of the three major things you're going to be doing over the course of the game. You have to hunt for the for the either the little iconography or god help you the actual text. Anyway, I don't again, I don't like harping on stuff like this, but it was so striking for a game that's so simple and so accessible. It's a very very simple game. It was just a bear to deal with it. Yeah, the problem I had was the fact that I have not played many of the smaller games, right? I've done, you know, Agricola, Feast for Odin, Caverna, Right, and then I saw this Reichhold. I loved the graphic design, and I and I grabbed it. And I thought it was, and and I just assumed I had not, I have not played any in some in Cottage Garden or or News Ford. I haven't played any of these games, and so when I went through the rules, I was like, okay. And then what do you do? <laughs> because, but the, and all that being said, I think this is a fantastic intro game. Like we had a brand new board game player there who who's not played on nothing pretty well, like maybe Magic or or uh, Minera once or twice and and the, and she was right near you know the end of the game you know near the front you know it's not as though she was you know had no idea what was going on she even picked it up it was still lots of fun we went back to it again today and we played a two-player and two-player works just as well and and uh she the very last game she was one point behind and i think it worked out great yeah, it's very accessible, and that is definitely a virtue of it. And it's a great way to introduce sort of a, a, a simple worker placement element and, indeed, some of these throughput concerns. But to my mind, when I think of some of the more successful intro games that I really like, there are lots of games that I would introduce to new players that I actively enjoy playing. Now, many of them are Reiner Knizia tile-laying games, things like Through the Desert, things like Blue Lagoon, things of that nature. It's just I don't understand why you would necessarily want to make a relatively procedural kind of first. You get the greenhouse, and then you get the veggies, and then you plant the greenhouse. Well, that I think just for that exact reason, for people who don't play board games at all, the, this, these are steps, logical steps, that make sense. Whereas opposed to these other games, they, you sort of have to make a leap you know, to these different rules where this makes sense. You need this vegetable, you need to plant it, it needs to grow, you need to harvest it, and then this is what you need to go around this track. So I think it, it just leans leads into itself of making sense and maybe make it more accessible. Sure. So if you told me that what I had to do was design a curriculum so as to train someone to be able to play Agricola and we were starting from nothing, then yeah, maybe I would pull out Reichholt as a teaching tool to get you ready for games that are actually engaging. Maybe. But and it's, uh, look, it's not terrible. It's I, I didn't I didn't loathe the experience, uh, you know, particularly because of the company, and particularly because half the time we were complaining about various elements of the game, and we enjoy complaining on this show. I think yes. that much is evident. Yes. But I, I it, it's it's just baffling because there are simpler Uwe Rosenberg games that are engaging and fun, and this just seemed like a strange design decision. 
to take that one element of Agricola and say, let's just make this the the entire game, and oh, by the way, for extra added insult, let's make the graphic design terrible. Yeah, I was also... Like I said, baffled. It was like, okay, I'm I'm just making an engine. I'm getting vegetables and then and then feeding the vegetables into the engine at the end. And then I'm going, okay, then what's phase two? <laughs> no phase two. That's the game. But that being said, there were some interesting uh, side cards that you could pick up that sort of influenced the game. That was part was kind of interesting. Other than that, it's, it's normal Uwe Rosenberg. There was A, B, C, D, and D decks that you could pick from. Maybe that'll change it up a little bit. It also had a story mode that might be interesting. I'll look into that. The story later. is you grow tomatoes. I, in Iceland. And that's the story in gotcha. the story mode. Fun fact, this is just because some viewers insist on a, a little bit of French every episode. Récolte is very, very similar to récolte, which is the French word for harvest. So there you go. Wow. Yeah. Now you know. <laughs> that was Reykjavik by Uwe Rosenberg. What did you? What else did you play last well, week, Parker? You, you, you took all of my. That's like you know I don't play many games, and you, you took Reykjavik. You know the one game that I did play. So congratulations on that. So go ahead. You've got the rest of the. <laughs> oh wow! What do you want from me? Uh, played Bargain Hunter. Bargain Hunter is another Uwe Rosenberg game. This is a game you put out twenty years ago. Uh, this is a trick-taking game for three or four players with uh, not really much of a theme, although the graphics are kind of cute. You've got these anthropomorphic little appliances that you allegedly find at a swap meet. So you can come up with uh, terrible stories about how they're plotting the wipeout of humanity or how they're, you know, that washing machine with a creepy smiling face on the front just wants to give you a hand and wants to eat your underwear. I don't know. And it's probably one of my favorite trick-taking games. It's very simple. It, ha- it has two major conceits. One of them is that any time you play off-suit, you can declare that it's Trump or not. And so there's a little bit of interesting control there. And the other major conceit is that at any given time, only one number out of nine, out of the nine numbers of cards, will give you points. The rest are trash. And you have to manage your trash in a relatively simple mechanism, but most of the cards you don't want, and you only want some cards at some times, and the timing changes there. Anyhow, it's a little difficult to wrap your head around. For a very simple game, a lot of people don't understand the notion of it, especially since in most trick-taking games, especially where there's no bidding involved, you want all the tricks. But... Bargain Hunter has been in my regular in regular rotation in uh, in my gaming collection for uh, probably about a decade now, and I played with some people who are very dubious of trick taking games, and they didn't hate it. They seemed to uh, they they said they enjoyed the experience, so that's something. And I I just I really I really enjoy it because most of my problem with a lot of the more gamery type of trick taking games they tend to be very very obtuse with these crazy bidding rules or strange nested considerations for what trumps what, and all manner of other stuff and. Sometimes I like that. My favorite trick-taking, my other favorite trick-taking game is Vashtikt by Karl Heinz Schmiel, and it is very much like that, as this weird deduction element. Anyhow, Bargain Under is a big favorite of mine. I think it's out of print. If you can track it, you can probably track it down for cheap or indeed proxy it without too much difficulty. Look into it if you're at all interested. And that was Bargain Under. You haven't played it, have you, Walker? I have not. Yeah. Last thing I want to talk about is I sat down with some solo time with Meltwater, a game of tactical starvation. Walker and I raved about this a few weeks ago, both for its tactical considerations and for its ability to inspire kind of revulsion and self-doubt on the part of the players, which as a genuine artistic statement is a very, very interesting place to be. And I wanted to see if both of those would be preserved, number one, coming back to the design, and number two, as a solitaire experience. Because there's no hidden information, there's no randomness past what is revealed at the start of the round, and so it leads itself very, very nicely to solitaire play in that sort of consummate way that I'm sometimes interested in. I'm very pleased to report that on both scores, Meltwater has held up very, very well. The tactical puzzle 
is very, very satisfying, but only in a very abstract way, because any satisfaction you might derive from mastering the tactical puzzle is immediately undercut by the notion, the, the, the immediate realization that you are starving innocent people to death for no good reason, because the apocalypse is on us, and whether they're American or Soviet doesn't matter, but you still have to starve them to death because you're blue and they're red, because, so they have to die. That's right. That's just the way things work. So it's either them or you, so someone's got to pay. No, but it's not. It doesn't have to be. That's the, <laughs> the entire point of the game is that it doesn't have to be them or you, but it, you want it to be them or you, and then you don't want to want the thing. Anyway, I could go on and on about the the psychology that it elicits, at least in us, and that, again, is part of the de- intended design on the part of Erin Lee Escobedo. This is her first published design, and I'm very, very much looking forward to her future work and experiencing more of Meltwater. It's a fascinating little piece, both in terms of it mechanically and in terms of the sort of emergent narrative. And we love emergent narrative here at So Very Wrong About Games. We do like the sort of explicit narratives of your kingdom deaths and all those other things, but emergent narrative is really, really nice when it's pulled off well. And so Meltwater, I think, remains a triumph of both of those, and I'm looking forward to playing it some more. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Let's start with stuff that really doesn't matter. Orville, fantastic alternate uh, Star Trek TV show with Seth MacFarlane. Uh, Guess what? WizKids has picked it up. I got really excited when I saw that. And then I read that they're just making hero clicks with Orville characters. <laughs> Unfortunate. You like the Orville? I love the Orville oh, show. Geez. It is hilarious. I mean, as fan fiction goes, I've seen worse, but... Well, you know, compared to what else is out there... So Samuel Bailey, he who designed Forbidden Stars, has a bunch of uh, reprints and new stuff coming out, courtesy of PSC Games. Now, PSC Games and I are kind of on the outs based on how incredibly badly they messed up the fulfillment of Quartermaster General of the Cold War. Uh, But once it hits retail, I might be interested in looking at that. So Samuel Bailey is going to be doing a redesign of Forbidden Stars. They don't have the 40K license anymore for perhaps obvious reasons, but the mechanics will be redeveloped. Walker's expressed some... Uh, lack of interest because you really liked the setting as part of the game. That's right. right. Yeah, it was all part of it because they really captured like every faction had its own abilities and stuff, and they really captured what it was all about and sort of sort of let you. Because when you play 40k, it's you know one versus one. This really captured this you know galaxy type conflict and did a fairly good job about it. Well, one of the things that Root taught us, I think, is that you can really get solid thematic hooks without any sort of explicit uh, tie-in or real-world analog. I mean, I think Root does counterinsurgency better than any other game, despite the fact that it's not about any actual counterinsurgency or insurgency for that uh, for that matter. So I'm kind of looking forward. I still haven't played Forbidden Stars. I keep meaning to try it. Just, But honestly, for me, the, the 40K theme is a turnoff. I don't, don't find it at all appealing. Moving on for more Samuel Bailey news, you might remember that last year I pointed out that there was a, a little bit of a kerfuffle because Samuel Bailey accused later games of ripping him off a little bit because they had originally agreed to publish another design by him called Deep. And he basically claims that they yanked some of his design principles and ported it into Root, and then they dropped Deep. We do not have an opinion on this. I have played Root, and we love Root. It was our game of the year last year. And... I've only looked at the rules for Deep. They don't look uh, very similar, but uh, look, I don't know. I I don't have a solid judgment on this one or the other. I'm in favor of everything being published so everyone gets to play everything, even when they're bad games. Not that I think that Deep is, but Deep is going to be published as well. So now we're really going to be in a position to play everything and, 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 and see where it lies and see 
whether it, it you know it does look like sort of the, the the progenitor of root or whether they really do stand on their own anyway i'm interested in seeing more of samuel bailey's output he said some interesting things to say and that is also going to be put up by psc games although there's no solid timetable as of yet all right, and just on more root no, root news, they've uh, said that their Kickstarter for the new expansion is going to be out March fourteenth, and that will be just mostly two new factions, which is going to be crows and moles. It's uh, root underworld, March fourteenth. Look for it on Kickstarter. Yeah, I saw the. Uh, I've seen some of the concept art for the crows and the moles, and of course, it is adorable. It's amazing. And then another quick news is Keyforge has announced an expansion. Not really an expansion. They really should have just called it, you know, the next set, right? Because you're not going to be adding any cards to the decks or anything. It'll just be more decks with different cards. The first set was 166 cards. This new one is going to be 204 cards. So even more cards, more decks. And unfortunately, I'm sure they fixed their algorithm so we won't have any more silly names. But we can always hope that there's a total reset and we'll get some really interesting stuff. Very excited about something that's on Kickstarter now called Wavelength. Wavelength is a sort of social party game designed by uh, Wolfgang Varsh, Alex Haig, and Justin Vickers. These are basically the people who did The Mind and uh, Monikers, although not at the same time, and different people doing this. This is clearly a game designed by people who play code names the same way that Walker and I do. Look, we've talked endlessly about our different experiences with code names and other games like the crypto and other games like that and how we want things to be raucous and fun and loud and with lots of smack talking. And just looking over the Kickstarter page for Wavelength, it's clear that these guys approach things the same way that we do. Indeed, their description right off the top says that it is a thrilling experience of talking and thinking and high-fiving. And that is exactly what we want out of large numbers of games like this. The opportunity to be clever, the opportunity to feel like you've engaged in a little bit of a mind meld with your teammates. Anyhow, uh, Wavelength is actually more about spectra than specific word associations. You have a, a spectrum, say, like from hot to cold or from hard to soft or what have you, and you have to give someone a clue such that they identify it on the proper wavelength that you've been, you've been identified. I'm very much looking forward to giving it a try. It looks very interesting, and that is on Kickstarter right now. All right, just those people who like Descent, you thought that they weren't going to support it anymore. Guess what? Another Descent expansion coming out called Lost Legends. I did a little bit of reading onto it. Surprise, I actually, you know, looked something up. Weird, right? I like read. Anyway. So when did you learn how to read? I, I taught myself today. It was, it was a long process, but I got there. Yeah, more classes. More classes oh. so, so you can uh, add them onto the existing characters. It'll be like more stuff so you can, you know, change up the characters that you already have. So more stuff for Descent is always good. It's a game that we're, I still play like once in a while. We used to have uh, like campaign night that's sort of fallen away a little bit for now, but I'm sure it'll pick up again sometime. And Descent was, you know, a, a constant uh, game that was being played there. So I'm looking forward to more stuff for that. That's Descent Lost Legends from Fantasy Flight. And then next one is just a quick thing. I just found it interesting. I never played Kingdom Rush on on my phone or whatever app, but the fact that they're making a board game out of it, what that will mean is that hopefully some people that don't play board games, because there's millions and millions of people that play this Kingdom Rush, maybe this will bring them in and they'll understand this hobby and how awesome it is. On the one hand, I, I would feel inclined to downplay the significance of any such thing, but on the other hand, I still do want to try the Jetpack Joyride board game, so I am weak to such things. And that is the news and why it does not matter. On to our feature game of the week, which is... Cerebria, the Inside World. 
This was developed by Mind Clash Games late last year, and it was designed by many, many, many people. I'm not going to bother butchering all their names, uh, but the only one with a design pedigree that is really worth noting in terms of situating in terms of past publication history is David Turtze, who is apparently the only person we talk about anymore because he has his hands in a lot of the games we've been talking about over the past few months, whether it's designing the solo mode for Teotihuacan, whether it's getting involved in Kitchen Rush, whether it's designing other games on his own Steam. Uh, He just seems to be a bit of everywhere uh, lately, so good on him. So Mind Clash games are the same people who put out Anachrony, and we talked very, very, very briefly about Anachrony in our 2017 year-end roundup because it just it was just shy of my top ten, and we gave it a shout-out for components. And Anachrony was a very sort of heavy, thinky, detail-oriented worker placement game with lots of stuff going on and lots of components in the box. And that is indeed the sort of brand that Mind Clash Games has established. Lots of stuff in the box, lots of stuff going on, lots of details, lots of elements, lots of components. And this is their third design. The first was Tricarion, which neither of us have played. There was Anachrony, which we both enjoyed. And now there's uh, Cerebria. So, Walker, why don't you give us a, an unhelpful summary of what one does in Cerebria? On Cerebria it's Try like, to keep it to like 10 minutes or less. No problem. It is a area majority game. And that's pretty well the most I can say about it. But there's so That's many, the, so, so we're done. That's no, it. No, oh, yeah, yeah. Moving on. Blah blah blah, and reactivity schmackity. No, um, because there's many reasons why you need area majority in this game, which makes it very interesting because there's many different actions, and they all come back to controlling this area. Like you'll get a bonus on you know getting this resource, or you'll be able to do this particular action, or or you know get victory points. It all has to do with controlling this board and the way that they do it. Like this will, you know, it's it's a fantastic how they've done it. You know, with the way the placement of the cards and everything else, so you're going around this board with your different emo- with your you know uh, main emotion. I guess you'd say it's either bliss or anger or whatever. And they put they're putting out these minor emotions that are controlling the board, and you can you can increase the the ferocity of these emotions, right? Which will the intensity the intensity of these emotions, which will give you more control, and you can build fortifications, which will give you even more points. And then and that has an interesting interesting way of of showing whether you control it or not. It's these constantly updating uh, markers on the board, so you constantly know who is in control, and you reassess it all the time. And then you you go... There's multiple ways the game will end, and you always know what the score is pretty well. There's no crazy final scoring. There might be some in the cards or whatever, but it's... it's uh, I like it the way it works that way. And then if one of these objectives are met, the game will end. Whoever has the most points will win. Cerebra. So let's start by talking a little bit about the theme, I suppose, because uh, mechanically, I think you did a good job. Uh, but Cerebria is it's you know it's called the Inside World, and it's notionally because you're representing the inner forces of a developing consciousness, of a developing identity, and indeed the, the central scoring element is called the identity. And so Walker talked about how you might be these these representations of, of inner forces, but some of the writing here I actually quite like. So you're not just going to be a, a representative of Gloom, which is one of the two factions in the base game. You're going to be Misery, the Breaker of Mirth, the Unobscured Mind. Or you're not just going to be some random bliss. You might be Delight, the Everbright, the Carefree. And the art is, I think, consistently very impressive. It's a very sort of impressionistic style. You have all these minor emotions like lethargy or sloth or 
happiness or courage or... Courage, happiness is a little too generic, but yeah, courage, things like that. And they're represented with these sort of like cartoon representations of what these things might be. And sometimes there are these lovely little details and sometimes they really catch. Now, sometimes it's difficult to represent these abstract concepts uh, in, in visual representation, but sometimes they're really, really neat. And I, I think that the theme overall for a thinky game is, is, is pretty well done. Now, sometimes it's going to fall apart uh, because it's going to get overwhelmed by the weight of mechanisms, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But I did want to just give a little bit of a flag to the consistency with which they've tried to paint a world. That, I'm going to go, just to go on top of that a little bit. And the fact the way the board is laid out and how there's this constant back and forth and, you know, the play with emotions, it's like this overwhelms you and then you come back. You know what I mean? It's this constant back and forth. I think they did a good job of this, you know, this feeling of your emotions taking over your mind type thing. I think they did a good job of that. And I think it's it's relevant that you identify it as a, as a back and forth, as a tug of war, because fundamentally in the base game, we'll talk a little bit about the expansion later, it is a two-way fight. It is a team-based game where you're either going to be on the part of Blitz or Gloom. And so it's area majority, but it's also kind of a tug of war by virtue of the fact that there's only only two of you. Now, some people love team games and some people hate team games. I think in Cerebria, it works both to its strength and to its disadvantage. I think it works to its strength in the sense that it helps obscure some of the problems with downtime. I talked a little bit about this in the context of Quartermaster General, right? Because in a team game, you feel engaged in your partner's turns, even if you're not doing anything. But by the same token, uh, people who have a strong problem with quarterbacking, they might find that the team-based element is is not necessarily going to sell it for them. Because sometimes even I have the impulse, and I, I've never really felt the impulse to quarterback very much. At least I don't think. At least that's what I tell people to think. But in Cerebria, I sometimes did have the impression that I was veering off into the thing of telling exactly what my teammate, what they could do. And uh, that, that was very novel for me in a number of ways. And so that might be a reason for people to shy away from this kind of format. I don't know. Did you have that no, well, Yeah, I got a, a sort of a point on that. And that it gave me a very big Mage Knight feel. Where in Mage Knight, there is an optimal turn. Right, And once you get halfway through your turn in Cerebria, you realize that you could have done it differently. So there's a lot of backtracking and going back and saying, no, okay, wait, I should have done it this way. Just like a Mage Knight, you get through your cards and you realize, no, no, it doesn't work that way. Or no, I could have done it better. And then you reassess your whole turn. You go back and you redo it again. So it's that same sort of thing where there is an optimal turn every time it's your time to go. And so it makes it a little bit harder to plan your turn out or, you know, make the game flow as well as it should. That's possibly my fault. In Mage Knight... That's kind of built into the game. They talk specifically about how to back up your turn. In Cerebria, well, generally speaking, I'm relatively permissive about people backing up and wanting to do their turn over if no new random game input has has entered the system. Uh, But possibly, in hindsight, I really shouldn't have been allowing people to do that, just letting people live with their mistakes because there's so much detail going on that you're inevitably going to try to think of a way to eke out that tiny little extra benefit. Yeah, I'm going to go over that right now. So here we go. Each player has a unique power. There are 16 different emotions, all of which that can be upgraded. So you're going to have a deck of 16 cards, so eight different emotions, and they all have different abilities. So eight different abilities on your cards that you need to know, and they all can be upgraded to eight more different abilities. And they're all different powers and the different timings where they happen right away or it's something you have to keep track of. And then you have your player boards. And your player boards has five actions, each of which can be upgraded three times. 
You have three ambition actions. You have five board actions. You have five absorb actions. And these are all things you have to keep track of and, and know what they do. And so with all this stuff going on, like we just said, there is a, 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 the best way to maneuver through all these actions and get the best out of each turn. So th- that is absolutely accurate. I will say that the iconography is a little bit better than I, I feared it was going to be. Before I played the game and, you know, I read all these things and I was trying to think about how to teach it, I was a little bit worried that the iconography was going to be unhelpful. It's it's pretty good. It, it helps carry things together. All that having been said, though, even after several plays, and we'd had the same group who played in rapid succession a couple of times, even then there were little details that we all had to remind each other. Oh, you can't do that thing that way. You can't do that thing that way. You can't do that thing that way. It's like, okay, fine, back up, do this thing. Which is a testament to how dense a lot of this stuff is. Now, basic, simple actions are simple. Again, I I don't think that it's a terribly similar game to Mage Knight, but here's another point of comparison to Mage Knight. In Mage Knight, just getting across the map can be a little bit fiddly and complicated. Well, not fiddly, but just complicated and dense in terms of eking out that extra little point of movement or whatever. Any individual thing you do in Cerebria is pretty simple. The problem is, as you identified in your excellent list, which is perhaps not even comprehensive, there's endless things that you can do on your turn. Nominally, you just get three actions and possibly an absorb ability, which it's called ability, not an action. So it's a differentiator from the actions, which are different kinds of things. More a little bit on that later in terms of terminology. But yeah, there's just this endless sea of stuff that can be done. So in part, I didn't feel the angst about finding the ideal turn because I knew I wouldn't be able to process all this stuff and you have to focus on short-term objectives. But that, I think, leads to its strengths in terms of tempo. Agreed. Let's just cover the objectives now that we're here. Let's. I really like the way they did it. There's a main objective deck, and then each team has an objective deck as well, which is identical to the main objective deck. So you're you have all of the objectives face up for the main board. So you and but they're in a certain order. So you know what order they're going to come in, and then everyone has their own objective deck, which is shuffled, and you're just going to know what the top one is. And when it comes time to score, you just find out did I achieve whichever main objective what turn it is and then you look at your your one that's on the top of your deck did you achieve that and then you get your points accordingly and that makes it way better than having to figure out what the other team might have as an objective or or stuff like that and the fact that they're the same as the main objective board makes it one less thing that you have to try to learn and that i think ultimately is let me just summarize it thus i really enjoy cerebria And I think it is worth the effort to overcome the rules complexity and the action complexity precisely because it comes to such a relatively clean and focused point in terms of the objectives. The things that you can do are varied and sometimes rather in-depth, but the scoring is straightforward. And honestly, I vastly prefer that to the alternative. Again, the Euro design trend has been about blowing up the complexity of scoring systems. The apotheosis of which I identified last week as Welcome 2, where pretty much the entire game is just internalizing the scoring conditions. Here in Cerebria, you have all these tools at your disposal, some of which you're encouraged to focus on and some of which you're encouraged to focus on less by virtue of the upgrade system, and some of which you'll be forced to just because of your finite mental capabilities, or at least my finite mental capabilities. My understanding is that you process everything like some sort of uh, uh, demiurge. But it all comes to a head in a relatively straightforward area majority system where you control regions and a relatively focused scoring system where you have tangible, short-term, tactical goals as well as a broader strategic outlook. And that marriage, that precise marriage, is why I think Cerebria works really well. And the, and the turn, I'm going to throw the turn 
sequence of that as well. But the fact that, you know, once someone starts, much like a scythe, you just keep going around and around until there's no worry about, you know, first player or reassessing who's in front and giving an advantage to anyone. I love, I wish more games figured out a way just to incorporate that every time. Yeah, there's no upkeep. There's no complicated round structure. You only pause for the briefest of moment every moments every time there's a scoring involved. But as as Walker said, all you have to do is okay, who accomplished the central objective, if anybody, and then everyone says okay, my private objective was accomplished or not, and then you score based on that. And it just in terms of the game getting out of your way, it does a very very good job, especially since and perhaps especially important because some of the fundamental systems are so dense and detail-oriented. So it's really good that it gets out of your way when it, when it matters, when it can. Because there are lots of games where the actions that you do are incredibly simple, but that the scoring or internalizing the victory conditions are incredibly baroque. The only person I've found who can get away with that is some Knizia games, where the scoring systems are a little bit mathy and cool and, and, and interesting, and the actions are very, very simple. Uh, I, really, I really do like the fact that it gets to be focused that way, which, and as a minor note, it's done in about two hours, max. The game box lists 60 to 120 minutes, which for a game of this complexity sounds very ambitious, but it's absolutely accurate. The first time I played, setup, rules explanation, and teardown was 110 minutes. And given that the rules explanation is so detailed and involved, that's, that's very impressive. Let's go about replayability. Lots of different ways to win. Did you want to go over those quickly? Well, I mean, despite the fact that the, the scoring is relatively focused, there's a number of different ways to go about doing it. Fundamentally, you're just playing with emotions on the board to exert influence over various elements of the board, but they nonetheless get a fair amount of mileage of, uh, on that because there are two different kinds of regions, and sometimes you care about one and the other, and sometimes you care about specific combinations of them, and sometimes you care about... Uh, the, the, the constitutive parts about how you're exerting control, for example, having more different kinds of emotions on the board or having the most intense emotion on the board and things like that. And given that you can look at the current round's objective and say, look, we're never going to get that. We're too far in the hole. It's not going to happen. Let's look at the one that's happening next round. Let's look at the one that's happening the round after that. Let's work towards that. Because again, you always have something that you can work for. And the payoff in terms of the tremendous variety of actions that you have is really felt because if you're able to keep your head about you, even if you're losing badly, you can look at the tools available. You take a step back and say, how am I going to dig myself out of this hole? I'm not going to win on this parameter. I can't fight there. I can, however, regroup and think about how to fight in another front. Yeah, or I, I, that's not what I meant. I meant different ways for the game to end, but I'll hit back what you said there. And not only win or lose that, you can just draw it. Like say, we're not going to win this, and I can't see a way that I'm going to win it in the future. But if I if I make this a scoring round now, we're tied now, and that way no one scores it, and then we go on to the next one, which I do have a chance at. So what I meant to say is that, the game is different every time because there are so many different ways for the game to end. Ah, yes. You can end the game by running out of score pieces. You can end the game by racking up a certain number of in-game points because there's both in-game and, and um, in-game points and end-game points. But again, it's very, very simple to parse. The end-game points are literally a plastic tower of pieces that are being constructed over the course of uh, the game. And they're color-coded, so you can just look at who has the larger color concentration. They're the ones who are winning. 
And the final way to win is if just by the end of the last scoring round, if nobody has managed to end the game in another way, the game will end in that way. And you can play to those different lengths. Last game we played, for example, you wanted to try something new, and you very successfully pursued a peace exhaustion strategy very, very, very aggressively. And the game ended much faster than we thought it would otherwise by virtue of that. It was it was impressive. It's also the case that on occasion, I've seen my partners do this. I've never been able to pull it off because uh, I, I don't tend to think that way. have been able to rack up a large quantity of in-game points very, very, very rapidly because, again, the game is more dynamic than it looks, and if you're if you're smart about it and if you're clever about it and if you seek out those tactical opportunities, you can really make a strong push in a way that your opponents don't anticipate. Agreed. And then there's the fact that you get to create your own deck. I mentioned briefly earlier that there are 16 different cards. You're going to be taking eight of these cards, two, two of each, and you're going to be creating your draw deck. These are all the emotions that you're going to play out on the board. And the book comes, we, we only played with the suggested ones, but you are allowed to pick whatever ones you like. So that's a very interesting way to make every game different as well. I just like to give people a little bit of advice about how to approach uh, Cerebri if you're inclined. And this, again, just sort of to sort of uh, finish up this discussion of how dense it can be, you need to keep the terminology consistent because, again, there are a lot of details here. One frustration I often have, and this has been for across a number of people that I've taught the game to, is they might say, how do I upgrade this thing? Well, in Cerebria, upgrade means a very specific thing. It doesn't mean making an emotion stronger. That's a different kind of action. It doesn't mean turning a mild emotion into a strong emotion. That's a different kind of action. It doesn't mean... Uh, make, uh, using your ambition to boost some action. That's a different kind of thing entirely. Upgrade refers to a very specific thing. Similarly, invoke means a very specific thing. S- similarly, exalt means a very uh, a specific thing. And sometimes the terminology isn't ne- really necessary, like the difference between invoking an emotion versus playing a card, not super important. But nonetheless, when it comes to things like upgrading, you have to be very clear about what it means, and everybody has to concentrate and pay attention and be on the same page. For that reason, if for no other reason, this is not going to be a game for everybody. Because if you are if you don't feel like being precise with your terminology and being precise with the difference between various actions, Cerebria is going to be a slog. And you're not going to be able to internalize it. And as, as such, you're not really going to be able to enjoy the tactical and strategic opportunities it presents. Agreed. So another reason why this game has decent replayability is the fact that there's eight different characters that you can play. And they all have asymmetric powers that will sort of guide you in a way to play that particular character. And they have two sides to their player board. You can play the generic side, where everyone's the same, or you can play the B side, where that specific character has very thematic-themed actions that really guide you on how to play that character and will help you win the game much easier. It makes it a lot more daunting to make sure that everyone's playing quote-unquote correctly because, as I said, we very found, we frequently found ourselves making mistakes because of how dense the details are. And when everybody has their own different menu of actions and different menu action upgrades, I started as a, as a as both as a control freak and as the person teaching the game, I started to get a little bit nervous. Like, is everyone playing correctly? Is that how the action works? I can't second guess every time any other player does an upgraded action. Yeah, that's the problem. It's like we already yeah. talked about how many hundreds, not hundreds, how many dozens of actions there are. And the fact that now you're playing the advanced sides, they're going to be slightly modified. So now you're not quite sure what that person is doing. It just, you know, throws that extra wrench into the system for sure. I did very much like the variety. I did appreciate the extra degree of asymmetry. It just, you know, made me a little bit nervous because I just knew that everyone was making mistakes. And so I, I, I couldn't trust that everyone had it, had it down, which I think brings it to the ultimate question, though, of a game like this. With this many rules, with this much effort that it takes to play, the question is, is it worth it? 
Because I think that's the, the, the big consideration. And that's ultimately why I got rid of Anachrony. Not because it was so detailed, but because it was detailed and long. And a worker placement game that is in excess of two hours, you have to really be excellent to stay in my collection. And, that, and Anachrony didn't quite make it. And a lot of games fall into that that category. Cerebria has a different set of challenges. It's not that it's too long. If anything, it's it's a marvelous length. How brisk, how how briskly it moves is 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 really really impressive. But is it worth the detail? Is it worth the mental overload? And is it worth the long rules explanation given that relatively brisk playing time? Because if you're going to be playing a game that lasts, you know, 80 minutes, suddenly that 30-minute rules explanation, the ratio seems very, very off. And so, well, I, that being said, this, this, this goes right into my wheelhouse of things I love to talk about because there's so many different groups. Like there's our group, you know, this group. If if you have a group that has a small collection, this is a fantastic game to bring in because it 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 really lends itself to being played multiple times. Once you learn how to play it, different strategies, different ways to win, different characters to play. But in our group, where we're constantly bringing in something new, a game like this, like you said, has to hit it really hard to to come back to the table every time. And there's so much rules. Like even if you have one new person then you have to go through the whole rules explanation. Even if everyone's played before, there's so much going on that you sort of need a little bit of refresher. So is it going to make it worth it to bring it back to the table? That I'm not sure. For this game, I'm pretty sure I would I would love to play it multiple times, even more. But for other people, I'm just not quite sure. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I think you said it perfectly. We are a group, partially because we are now professional game reviewers. But also just because we like the variety and we have large collections that churn on a relative basis. We tend to go through things very quickly. Despite that, we have made the effort to get Cerebria down to the point where we can get it with a minimum of of, of rules problems. And I'm still in I'm still sufficiently sold on the setting and the mechanisms and the experience that I want to keep playing Cerebria. I want to keep putting in that effort in to keep going through those 20 to 30 minute rules explanations and to keep finding the nuances. And that, I think, because it's just barely worth it, despite these tremendous barriers, I think that's a testament to the quality of the game design. Because when I was looking at, uh, looking at all these barriers of, of, of as you... That, that you laid out so very well, I thought, look, it'll be a minor miracle if any game could live up to these expectations. And quite frankly, the fact that Cerebri has is quite impressive. All right, well, we've talked about all the good things. Do you have any more good things to talk about before we before I crash into this thing with my sledgehammer? Nope. All right, so let's start off with this is, in fact, a developer's nightmare, right? We have actions all over the place. We've already talked about them. They are not all listed one place. They are all over the cards. You even have a side sheet to list all like the 16 different abilities on the cards. Uh, you have to be in certain places on the board to do certain actions. So you can't do all the actions all the time. You have to be in certain places to do them. And we, Like I said, then we've already talked about how some of the, the upgraded actions override the basic actions. So you're not sure you know how it works. All of the different emotion powers I already talked about, and then the it becomes very AP prone due to the fact that there is the optimal turn. So it is. It is. Yes. If this weren't a team game, I would never want to play it with four players because I would be completely unengaged during the three other turns. I'd just be sitting there waiting for the turns because turns can get reasonably long, even though it's just three actions and, and an absorb usually, and any number of other abilities. Because again, actions and abilities are different. 
And I do think that some of the things could be shaved off. I really do think that uh, Fortify in particular stands out because Fortify is a bit strange. The conditions under which you can do it are a little bit weird. It's a, it, it adds to the strategic and tactical depth of the game, especially strategically because you can lay out fortifications with the expectation that they're going to pay off in, in future turns. But even just some of the way the upgrades work are bizarre and just very different from how the other actions work. So I wish... You know, in an ideal world, maybe I would have just jettisoned that and tried to tried to make the game w- without it. But I agree with you that in terms of processing the information, you have to be on the ball with all the terminology, and you have to insist that all the players use the terminology properly, and all the summaries are all over the place. Yeah, there's a lot to track. All right, and you really need to know both sides. I'm going to combine both of these together. It's sometimes it's really hard to see what your opponent is trying to do, and this is a game where you really need to react and either stop them or sort of hinder them. And sometimes it's not quite clear what they're doing, so you cannot do that. And the fact that you need not only know all of your own abilities and cards, you really need to know what they're capable of. So it's yet another layer on top of what you need to learn. My biggest knock on the game, honestly is that Cerebria, I think the base game, is a four-player game and no other player count. Because if you're playing two players, I think there are, again, just for us, there's a lot of competition for two-player games. I think it, it works fine two players, but for us, it wouldn't it wouldn't really stand the test because there's tons and tons of two, excellent two-player games that we almost never get to play. With three players, it's a team of two against a single player, so one player is taking twice as many turns as everybody else. And those dynamics, I do not enjoy just don't like them. So basically you're left with four players, two teams of two against each other, which, you know, now you're talking about a very very narrow player count which makes me which makes me nervous. And this is really only ameliorated once you introduce the expansion, which again, we'll talk about in a little bit. For me, that's the that's the second biggest knock against the Rebirth. Like I said, and I, I'm going to talk about it because it'd be crazy. If you go up to six players, which you can, that means you're waiting for 15 actions before you get to take another turn and that is ridiculous. Yeah, it's uh <clears throat> When you add the... So let's talk about the expansion specifically in the, in the context of, of player count. The expansion introduces a third faction, Balance. So there's Bliss, Gloom, and then Balance. And it allows you to play with uh, three different teams. Now, we played three-player, and three-player, it worked fine. The downtime was marginal. Not only fine, I thought it was fantastic. Well, I'm just talking specifically in terms of the dynamics of a three-player yeah. game and in terms of the downtime. If, but people need to know what they're doing. This is not for the first play. So your first play shouldn't be, I think, with anything other than, than than four players personally. Once you get into three teams, the game says you can now play from one to six. I didn't try the solo mode. Sorry, I'm 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 a bankrupt journalist. I have no standards. But with five players, again, you have that dynamic of one player taking twice as many turns as some other teams, and past four players, just the downtime is going to be killer. There's only so much of the oh, I get to pay attention to my to my teammate's turn. It's not going to get get you through. It would it just drag, drag, drag. Agreed. All right. This is a minor point, but it is something. Constantly reassessing the control. Like I said, you're flipping these control markers back and forth. See, you controls all these. So there's two main, main areas on the board that you have to control. What are they called again, Mark? They're called Realms and Frontiers. So there's Realms and Frontiers, and they're constantly flipping back and forth between who has the most influence or something in them and there's many things that give you this influence or change it or modify it which is you know powers of the the powers of the emotions. emotions that are in there or if you have fortifications in there or all sorts of different things and sometimes it's it's just yet another step that you have to constantly like I said it's a minor thing but it is something 
that I felt was a little fiddly. Fortunately, not every action changes it, and it's only a two-player game, so it, it could be a lot worse than it is. But yeah, sometimes you forget to update it correctly. And the only other thing I have, I think that's it. It's just the fact that you need multiple plays in order to really enjoy this game. So to sum up, allow me to just reiterate. We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the barriers to playing Cerebria in its ideal setting. The information load, the rules load, the experience load, the player count being a little less flexible than, than you'd like. But I have to say that the fact that I still want to keep playing Cerebria, that I want to show new people Cerebria even, is a testament to how good the game is. Because despite this sea of tools that are available to you, you really do have a freedom to pursue different kinds of tactical and strategic objectives to a very focused and easily internalized scoring system in a mechanism that I really enjoy, namely area area majority, that I think is done well. And so whether you like the team-based aspect or not, whether you're charmed by the artwork or not, if you like meatier, heavier games... I think Cerebria is worth a solid look. And it re- I was very, very pleased and impressed by how much I thought the payoff was worth the investment. But make no mistake, you will have to put in the work and make the investment. Yeah, I definitely want to play it again. I definitely want to go through all of the different emotions. And you can almost, it's almost deck building. You can pick the emotions you want and try to get this interesting combo that even works good with a particular character and like merge all this together into an interesting strategy to win the game. So I'm, I'm looking forward to to developing it more. I, I want to play it again. And that was Cerebria, The Inside World by Mind Clash Games. Now on to the ultimate hype machine, which is hype and game. Hype! What, what? All right. So this is all about... I don't want to get into too much about other reviewers or other, you know, like these Kickstarter... There are other reviewers? There are. Believe it or not, I, I found something there. Anyway, there seems to be this, you know, plethora of people that do Kickstarter reviews of games that aren't even out yet. They're not reviews. Well... Don't even. I, well, look. To their credit, they don't even tend to call them reviews. Gotcha. They're hype hype videos, yeah. which is what they are. Paid adverts. And yeah. I, I don't have any problem with these, but I'm saying just this is this is the new the new norm. What we get into, and one of the reasons why I've started this podcast was to you know break through all of this stuff and just to bring straight information and and you know because you know I enjoy being the center of attention and it's just spending quality time with my good friend Mr. Merck. Bigney, right? Mark Bigney here. And <laughs> anyway, let's get on with this. Let's see. What do I have here? So there's also, there's so I have a quickly, there's, I can break it into two things. Oh, you also brought into the third thing. So there's three things. What makes, what hypes us about up about games? And I have two things here post-hype, like before a game even comes out, there's a whole hype with that. And then after a game comes out. So the post-hope is, the post-hype is mostly so people know that it's coming out so they can get those quick sales and it's usually, from what I've read, it's to support their next project, right? They want that huge uh, blast of income so they can get going on their next project. And with Kickstarters, it's something completely different. That's a whole different uh, ball of wax. They just need the, the pre-sale hype because they want the numbers right off the beginning because that's how Kickstarter works. The current cycle seems to be... I actually... Uh, I, I comment on, on this, not on the podcast, a while ago that it seems strange that reprint Kickstarters for games tended to be timed in an awkward way. Because because of the, the, the large number of new releases, you have a Kickstarter for a game and it raises however much money and that generates its own hype. And then it gets released 
backers get it, and that generates some amount of, of hype. Maybe it enters general retail, maybe it doesn't. That generates its own hype. And then often, six months passes, and then the reprint happens. Or expansion. Or expansion. And the timing seemed weird, but now they seem to have internalized that that's not the efficient way to do things. The efficient way to do things is to launch your second reprint or expansion Kickstarter the instant the base game hits the market, or the instant you do fulfillment of the first game, which makes more sense from a hype perspective, but makes a lot less sense from a consumer's perspective, because that just doubles down into the cycle where you have to decide whether or not you want to buy a game before there's any chance for a sort of broader critical or market or uh, geek buddy or whatever consensus about whether the thing is any good. Well, that's what that's what I have down. That's the reason yeah. why they do it. Because then they don't have a chance to get feedback from the general market. They have all these other, you know, media outputs that are saying the game's great. That's fantastic. This is by my favorite designer, and all his games are great. No, no, it's not. Well, the, the pro- if, if, if more hype were like that, I'd be more okay with it. But it's mostly driven by visual media, which is fine. I've been, I, I'm, I'm, I'm as big a fan of the eye candy as the next person. But when you look at the, the, the more recent kind of Kickstarters that have worked on this model where you raise a bunch of money, the instant it hits backer's hand, you immediately start the next Kickstarter. We're talking about things like Dinosaur Island, uh, Vindication more recently, Seventh Continent. These are not driven by publisher track records. These are not driven by designer track records. These are not driven by development work. This is designed by pretty concept art and then attractive final products. And I'm okay with that. These are these are visual products, and to a large extent, in terms of the actual financial outlay, a lot of this is the components. And Dinosaur Island is a beautiful game. Vindication is a beautiful game. Seventh Continent was a beautiful game. But by the same token, it's forcing the consumer to make less and less informed decisions. And that is what I hate the most about the current hype cycle. I also have to have down here that I think it's making IPs much more strong. Because it's 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 what the hook it needs to draw these people in, right? So if you can associate it with a, with a big IP, then you're going to get a much bigger hit off the beginning. I, I hope that that is that the enthusiasm for that has died out a little bit after a very high publicized, not necessarily failures, but very, very rocky fulfillments. I'm talking specifically about a lot of the Steamforge stuff, whether it's uh, the failed Resident Evil Gambit or things like the ongoing disaster of the Dark Souls fulfillment or a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, I'll stand by what I said. A lot of it, a lot of the hype is driven by the attractiveness of the components, whether they're minis or anything else. But there have been very high-profile quasi-failures of, of, of IP-driven games. So I don't know how, how, how whether... Maybe the legs are coming off that. Although, who knows? Maybe, maybe it's here to stay. Trends. I feel as though that this is leading to these trends that we're seeing. Because when they see that there's a hot trend, they're going to keep hitting it. So, like, we got zombies, we got pirates, we've got escape rooms, and now we got roll to write. So a company sees... That this trend is hitting hard, they quickly push, push, push to get these games out, hype them up, get them out there, get them sold, on to the next thing. I don't necessarily know that that's a function of recent hype developments or hype at all. I mean, it's just the case that there there seem to be ideas that grab the zeitgeist for whatever reason amongst the developer community. It's just I think when I think of the hype cycle as it's as it's currently constituted, I think very much about things like Kickstarter. I think very much about the nature of board game publicity as it exists now. But when I think about gaming design trends uh you know like whether it's card driven war games in the 80s whether it's auction games in the 90s whether it's worker placement games in the aughts like all that stuff 
similarly, you had these very solid trends where you'd see tons and tons of releases in the same kind of milieu. The same is true of movies that's been happening for decades and decades and decades. The same has been true of novels for centuries. So I, I don't know if that's necessarily a, a, a new hype development, although you're very much, it is definitely the case that trends do tend to drive production in pretty much any media. So do you feel that any of this gives us uh, new, more new games than we'd normally have, this hype thing? And do they make the games any better than they normally would? I don't know if it's a chicken and egg thing. I honest, uh, or chicken or egg thing. I, I honestly don't. I don't know why. I'm not in a position to speculate as to why this this, this that we've had this crazy explosion over the past five years and whether or not it's sustainable. In part because publishers don't release many figures, and we don't really know a whole lot about how the business end is doing because they, they tend not to be very transparent business organizations. So I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. Only silence follows. Only silence follows. Let me just read what I said first. There was a time, long ago, where you just simply bought all the games that came out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm being serious. No, I know. I know. know. This was done. Like back in Axe and Allies days or those days, if a game came out, you bought it. You simply could keep up. Now it is simply impossible to do so. And I think that because there's such a saturation in the market that there is a push to find this great hook or this great gameplay to keep your company in the spotlight, keep your head designer in the spotlight to get them so people will buy more games. I really do think that this is giving us some new things because not only is it bringing out more games that people are not, I shouldn't say stealing ideas, borrowing or using ideas. I think it's just flooding the market with all these new ideas that that these designers are pulling and combining all this stuff together and giving us new and interesting projects. Another part of that is the art. I think the artwork and the miniatures that we see in games has gone ridiculously off the scale due to the fact that you want this huge production at the beginning, this eye candy to see to get people to buy it. Like if you compare figures or art with just like say eight years ago, Man, it's such a huge difference. So I think that part is the good part about hype so far. Again, I wish it was more driven by big-name designers being given the opportunity to really pursue their own interests. Because I really, I am one of those people that, you know, tends to to focus on designers and look for their next, next project. A lot of it is, if you look at the stuff that's raising a whole bunch of money on Kickstarter, it's first-time publishers, first-time designers, and they all say the same thing. It's like, oh, I've been playing games for 20 years. I've played so many games, you guys. I know all the games. I've played so many games. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. And I'm like, ugh. What's Renner Knizia be doing next? Like, I, I, I'm a bit jaded in that sense. I agree with you entirely that the tremendous production values are great. And as I say, I, look, I, I like a mini as much as the next guy. And I'm not, I don't have the knee-jerk reaction that a lot of other, you know, war gamers or, or Euro gamers have and see that a game is full of minis and assume, therefore, that it's terrible. I don't have that association. Uh, I, I, I'm probably a little, more, uh, little too vulnerable to the appeal of a, a giant box full of minis than I should be. Uh, but in that sense, I guess I'm very much squarely in the market. The one I think I miss is going to a gaming store and, and seeing a game on the shelf and being surprised or excited, right? <laughs> like, you know, meaning like you've already been, you know, we've already... maybe Retail hype. You missed yeah, the retail yeah, hype. Yeah, maybe because, you know, of what we do, we already look into it. But I think even before we started this, I think just because of uh, Board Game Geek, they always push it or, you know, or the local reviewer or the 
the people that you listen to, they've already pushed all this stuff through you. So you don't like go into your gaming store and find this gem that you never heard of or had no idea that was coming out because you, you you know it all already. So you're saying we're part of the problem. Damn straight. Yeah. Well, mostly you, but, you know. <laughs> Look, I, I, I will say this in terms of, of bright spots. The games that do come out, some of them do genuinely get hyped because they're just really, really, really good. I think of things like Root. I think of things like Gloomhaven. You know, the, our games of the year over the past couple of years that got hype because, in part, because of the components. Absolutely, was the case that Gloomhaven was just a you know giant box full of stuff, and Root is adorable. But part of it was also because Cole Worley had some design credits to his name, and people knew he was interesting. And part of it was because later games has a reputation that they utterly don't deserve because Vast is a terrible atrocity, but. I, I do like the fact that most of the games that we've really, really liked over the past couple of years have found market success, despite all these toxic hype influences that we've identified. Granted, they were both Kickstarter projects, uh, but even you know the, the, the slightly more obscure stuff. My understanding is that Blue Lagoon has been doing very well. My understanding is that Seal Team Flicks has sold out of its initial print runs. And it's those success stories of genuinely good, solid sometimes innovative, sometimes just really solid, games are still finding success. And that makes me happy. Yeah, to, 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 I think to finish off this part of it, then we'll get into what what uh, creates hype for us. And I have, I have no figures to back this up. I just have a lifetime of business experience. And some reading into the industry in general is the fact that there is not a lot of money in board games. And for these producers to keep giving us these games, guess what? They have to make money. And in order to make money, they have to get us to buy games. <laughs> so this hype, insta-hype to get us to buy these games, be they good or bad, is what they require so they can do their next project. So in the end, I feel as though this hype, be it sometimes terrible, sometimes overrated, sometimes over the top and painful, uh, is sometimes a necessary evil. As much as I like to be cynical and look down on people who like things that I don't enjoy... It is the case that if you genuinely enjoy playing something, you know, I might be in a position to say, oh, you were just deceived by the hype or you were just overcome by, you know, your enthusiasm is entirely borrowed from an undeserved glowing review from someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. I just want to break in just very quickly. This this particular part has nothing to do with Architects of the New Kingdom and, and of the, the, West, Kingdom, of the yeah. West Kingdom and the fact that it was hyped up and is a terrible game. No, no, no. We're, 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 we're going nothing... to get to that later when I start asking <laughs> you pointed questions. But no, look. Look, let's say... Let, I'm willing to stipulate for the sake of argument. Maybe there's somebody out there who's playing a game and they enjoy it only because it was hyped. If so, smoke them if you got them. That's fine. You're enjoying it. Go, go forth. Go forth and enjoy the game. I'm not going to accuse anyone of false consciousness, right? If you enjoy it, go and enjoy it, even if it is for a reason that might not be, you know, critically legitimate. I'm, I'm willing to, 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 to be okay with that. I don't know if this person exists. I don't know if that ever happens. But if it does, that's fine. Joy in the world is joy in the world. So, Walker, what gets you hyped? Why did you make me get Architect of the West Kingdom? I, I generally find that the hotness list on BGG has some credibility, right? If something stays on there for a while and hovers around, you know, the top 10 or so, then there is something there that some people have found, that there is a hook or something that makes it uh, enjoyable to play, something fun. And I, I, I have, there's, I've had some misses on there. Have you now? I have. And, and also the fact that Architects of the West Kingdom was, were, was on quite a few top 10 end of the year list as well. Sure. 
So all of this led me to believe that there was something there. We should we should stop harp. I should stop harping on this well, one. We're game. not really. Har- we're, well, <laughs> I don't think we're. Har- this is this is. We can generalize saying this is games that get hyped, right? Sure. This, sure. This I'm sure it's not. This is not solely on on architects of the West Kingdom. <laughs> anyway, this all being said, it's on BGG. It was on top ten lists. Usually, there's something there. One to give a try. I I tend not. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Because sometimes when you read a rule book, you you infer some you infer some things or misread some things or feel as though it's going to play out a certain way that it just doesn't. And when you actually get it to the table and play it, when there's the interaction between people and how it actually plays out, it's much different. And I feel that it's not just laziness on my part that I don't read rule books. I think that it's it's a uh, just a way that I do it. I, I find a hook. Like there's a game coming out called Scion Tenpore. They have this skill tree that's much like a video game, like Exalted, or like uh, where you, you know, you snake your skills through and you create this really, that's the, I just saw that, that's the hook, I did a little bit of reading, I want to try this, I want to see how that one concept of this game influences the rest of the game, right? So that's what I'm looking for when I see a game, I want that one uh, game design hook. It's not the art, it's not the miniatures, all of the games have that now. It's that one design concept and how it will influence the rest of the game. That's probably the one area of overlap that we have in terms of how we get hyped, because it's very, very clear that we consume these things very, very differently. Uh, if it's something that I haven't seen before, what you might call a hook, then that might get me intrigued. Sometimes it's just whimsy uh, that, that I, I get something. Like, for example, I remember being very excited, and I was I, I very much enjoyed the game called Morde Morosa because it was about hearing where a cube would fall in a tower. And that's just something, that was just a skill that hadn't been tested before in board games that I played before. So I was very, very curious about it. A lot of Haba games like Kuf Kuf or uh, Puff Puff, rather, which, are, which is about blowing air properly, or Rampage, which was also about blowing pieces. Little bits of whimsy like that will, will, will often get me intrigued and hyped. But mostly what I do is uh, I don't pay attention to the BGG hotness, honestly. I pay attention to designers, I sometimes pay attention to developers. I pay attention to the GMT P500, for example. And mostly what I do, honestly, in terms of upcoming stuff that doesn't come my way through the endless Kickstarter emails that I get from past projects that I should really turn off, is I've found a retailer that I trust, and I check in every day to see what new stuff they get. Because if you have a retailer that gets in the obscure stuff, that bothers to track down the foreign title and import stuff, that gets the stuff that you wouldn't necessarily have heard of, I check them every day, and that's where I find a lot of the stuff that just catches my eye for whatever reason, usually because I haven't heard of it. And if I just check down to see maybe it's a designer I haven't, uh, uh, maybe it's a designer whose work I've I've been intrigued by, maybe they mention that little key mechanical innovation that I haven't seen elsewhere. That's how I found great stuff like, uh, that's how I was tuned, tuned into DVG games, for example, Diversion Games. I, I, I was tuned into that just because I saw uh, Warfighter show up for the first time in, uh, in in my favorite retailer. That's how I found Assault on Doomrock. That's how I found lots of, of neat little weird stuff. Uh, so that that's primarily how I get hyped, especially because I don't like getting hyped for something a year before I'm able to get it. I don't find that process of excitement fun. I find it frustrating. It's the same reason why I don't consume video game news anymore. Only tell me about it when it's out. I don't want to hear about it before it's out. So for me, that's I, I still have that sense of, of retail excitement, albeit online when I see new stuff. And that's how I get hyped. So that's going to do it for us this week. Thanks so much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. 
For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks very much once again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Hate is coming. <laughs> You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.